0: think the reasons her funniness are dismissed are the reasons that her books are dismissed generally people assume she was posh she wasn't posh she was a woman she taught at oxford therefore she must be an intellectual and we don't Mm. like those in britain um so you know why would you want to read a book by a posh female intellectual what a stupid idea but actually (laughs) she was really funny and really fantastic Hello and welcome
1: back to The Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Today we're going on a little road trip. Picture, if you will. We are in the hustle-bustle, throbbing heart of Soho. We're turning off into a narrow alley off Great Windmill Street and we come into a place called Smith's Court. It's a renovated, very well-hidden courtyard that once housed fairers and horsemen, and in that leafy, stony courtyard is a small shop called The Second Shelf. It's painted a warm red on the outside, and in the window you can see hundreds of books by women. There are little lights everywhere that you can see coming through the glass, and a hum of chatter fills the air. We are off to an Iris Murdoch event at The Second Shelf. Alison is the owner, she's going to tell you a little bit more about the shop. But here at vintage we are celebrating a hundred years since iris murdoch's birth if you don't know that much about iris murdoch that's okay that is why we're here Uh, she was an incredibly funny submersive and fearless philosopher and writer uh, in the 20th century she was born in dublin in 1918 and she studied classics at oxford she went on to write 26 novels including the booker prize winning the sea the sea which we're going to talk about uh, in this episode And I find that she's sometimes not so talked about uh, when we talk about the literary canon, even though she's had a huge impact on literature today. And she has this amazing, incredible following um, of readers. I've never met fans like Iris Murdoch fans until I went to this event at the second shelf. So pick up a glass of wine, find a seat if you can. It was a lovely, full, packed event in this bookshop. Uh, and listen to Alison tell us a little bit about the second shelf and then you can listen to our panellists um, three of our panellists have written introductions to our new editions of Iris Murdoch pop over to our Instagram to see the lovely new covers we've given Iris's work content warning their enthusiasm is contagious uh, so I hope you really enjoyed this discussion and it makes you maybe want to pick up an Iris Murdoch book in future
2: Welcome to my sardine can of a bookstore. bookstore. Um, This is the second shelf. It's a rare and antiquarian, modern first edition, and manuscript-filled bookstore of books by women, with the exception of Philip Pullman, who I just couldn't help but put in because of Lyra. And then I use him to talk about Susan Cooper. Who he loved and was inspired by, and who less uh, readers know about. Uh, I founded the second shelf to redress the imbalance in the rare book world of representation of women. Uh, the rare book world is like a very predominantly male environment uh, and marketplace, for and the book dealers are mostly male, and the book collectors are mostly male, and they primarily collect books by men, although there are exceptions. Uh, usually something with, like, Iris Murdoch. The She gets collected for her first novel and The Sea of the Sea, but kind of the rest are considered not interesting. So we can change that, because I have so many of them here for you to take home in first edition. <laughs> it's been really, it's only been open seven months. I have a magazine that um, we hope will be biannual, but right now it's averaging one a year. And um, that leads me to introduce uh, Lucy Scholes, who is the managing editor and also is chairing tonight. And she is going to... Um, lead this um, illustrious panel of Murdoch man mania fanatic writers (laughs) please ask me questions and talk to me about the books I have after and we also have the beautiful vintage new paperbacks which literally are so sublime um, that I'm I will keep my own set
3: Thank you, Alison. That's great. As she said, we have got a wonderful panel of guests tonight. I'm so excited to be talking about Murdoch with these three brilliant authors. Um, We organised this event, obviously, uh, to coincide with uh, what would have been Iris Murdoch's 100th birthday, um, which would have been on Monday this week. And uh, she was born in 1919 in Dublin and she died 20 years ago in Oxford in 1999. Um, we've done this celebration in collaboration with Vintage, who have bought out these beautiful paperbacks here. Um, so please do buy them later, like Alison said. Um, they're not only just really beautiful to look at and a kind of wonderful way into her work, if you haven't read much Murdoch before, but we have got they have got these wonderful new introductions by um, a host of brilliant writers and authors, including our three panellists tonight. So we have joining us Daisy Johnson at the end, who has written the introduction to The Sea, The Sea, and Daisy, as everyone I'm sure knows, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and so it's very apt that she is introducing the book that Murdoch won the Booker for back in 1978 um, next to her we have Charlotte Mendelson, who has been longlisted for the Booker Prize and for the Orange Prize as well or was it the Baileys at that point in time both. both Okay, both. <laughs> there we are Yay. all covered <laughs> <laughs> and Charlotte has written the introduction to Under the Net and next to her we have the author journalist and broadcaster Bedisha, who has written the introduction to the Sankar uh, which was published in '57, is that right? I think so. Yeah, '57, which was her third, with Murdoch's third novel. But I think the best place to start might be with her debut novel. So, Charlotte, I think you've chosen a bit that you can read for us, so to give us a little taste of it, and then perhaps you can um, give us a, a brief introduction to this and, and
0: what, why you wanted to write the introduction to this book and what it's meant to you, perhaps. Under the net, Iris Murdoch's first novel. Can I start with my introduction? And then yeah, no, that's okay. fine. Whichever way. So I prefer. was told this was the one that will I write an introduction to an Iris Murdoch book? It's under the net, and I thought, well, <laughs> oh shit, because it's one of the ones I hadn't read, and the reason I hadn't read it was because the copy and any reference to it always makes it sound awful. So it's always a kind of brittle, surreal farce um, with you know people falling in love with each other all over the place, and I mean I know that's general for her books, but brittle and surreal. It sounded kind of boring and unfunny and <laughs> sort of um, artificial in a really repulsive way so I thought this is awful I really did I wanted to introduce the ones that everyone else was introducing this in there you've got to this one um and so I kept it <laughs> <to> fr- <laughs> it's true um and I started reading it thinking okay that's fine I can just do an introduction to how wonderful Iris Murdoch is this can be my springboard and I know it sounds made up but this is completely true I totally fell in love with it, because it's actually got so much of the things that makes Iris Murdoch wonderful in a sort of interesting proto-form. So, for example, it's got people who are sort of poorish alcoholics, not posh people in huge Cornish houses. It's got um, the protagonist coming to realise that the key to happiness and the key to being a decent person is noticing other people have feelings, and also that noticing is the way to stay alive. It's got... A really fantastic, quite sexy dog. It's got <laughs> people falling in love with sort of each other in that convenient Murdoch-y way, but that is actually, although not in this book, I think incredibly queer, which is one of the things about her that's so totally cool. Um, and it's genuinely funny, and I find so few books funny, but I did genuinely laugh at this. And the, the bit that I've chosen to read is very, very quickly is from, of course, near the end because I'm very difficult, um, and it's where Jake, the protagonist has gone to rescue his old friend and sort of homoerotic crush, Hugo Belfander, from a hospital. Um, And there were two tiny bits I wanted to read because I just think they encapsulate some of Iris Mylock's incredible writing that no one else can do, really. Um, okay, so... He's crept in. It's at night, and the idea of a hospital at night is fascinating, anyway, isn't it? Anyway, I opened the casement wide and then hooked my fingers firmly onto the steel frame of the opening on each side. But the foot of the window was just too high for me to reach it with my knee. There was no sill on the outside. I stood back. I hesitated, spring up for fear of making a noise. Then I thought I heard footsteps approaching along the road. Quick as a flash, I put one hand onto the opening and sprang. The steel frame of the f- steel edge of the frame caught me at the hip next moment I was heeling over gently onto the sill on the inside and drawing my legs after me. I stood dead still on the floor of the storeroom. There was a silence into which it seemed to me that I had just let loose a vast quantity of sound. But the silence continued. And I chose that. I know it's a bit of a writery bit to choose, but I just thought, what an unbelievably brilliant way of conveying the stillness and silence of a place you shouldn't be in, and then the enormous noise you accidentally hit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that you chose
3: bits that are funny though
0: because I think something that people often don't think about Murdoch being a funny writer I think the reasons her funniness are dismissed are the reasons that her books are dismissed generally people assume she was posh, she wasn't posh she was a woman she taught at Oxford therefore she must be an intellectual and we don't Mm. like those in Britain Um, so why would you want to read a book by a posh female intellectual what a stupid idea but actually (laughs) she was really funny and really fantastic yeah do the other t- other two of you? Do you find
3: the funny? I mean, Daisy, you've got the wonderful *The Sea, the Sea*, yeah. which has some of the best and quite hilarious food descriptions. I think <laughs> this is a much talked-about thing in this book, right? Isn't it? And yeah. you know, you mentioned it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. And
4: yeah, I found it so funny and kind of. Um, I think you are saying embarrassingly funny. I think that's how I found, you know, you almost want to have, and I guess the kind of the same way as a film, like Duck Soup, you almost want to have your hand over mm. your eyes while mm. it's happening because you don't want it to happen. Mm. And you know what they're going to do. You know, mm. she sets up her character so well that as soon as something begins to happen, you're like, that's what they're going to do. And I wish I could tell them not to, but and they're all, they're kind of rolling towards this awful thing, which <laughs> is hilarious mm. and <laughs> so painful at the same time. Um, yeah, I'm go- and I'm going to read one of the food bits, but the food is just ridiculous you know these elaborate things <laughs> where he's like obviously we only eat apples at five o'clock or things like <laughs> this and like you know and like descriptions of the way you should eat sardines and they're oh, just sardines. such ridiculous characters but they also you know kind of remind you of people you know that they kind of in the, i think it, it's you know people writers always say oh you can't write something that's real because it feels too real and she everything she feels is ridiculous in its realness, I think. It f- seems exactly like the way your uncle would eat sardines, or you know, the way your uncle kind of dunks radishes in butter and then salt. And um, yeah, ridiculous but kind of wonderful at the same time. Mm. Um, and talking to my sister before, she just she kind of said, "I just hate all of the characters. The characters are so awful," and I think they are awful. They're such awful people, and the way they treat <laughs> each other, and like the way in Under the Net they treat their friends, like
0: like <laughs> absolute. They're such users. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want
3: to read us a bit from the food section? Yeah. Just to give us a, a sense of the um, novel, so well, the food sections. I should say there's plenty of
4: them. Yeah. The- <laughs> so I'm, I wanted to read two little bits, but I'll just read the food one now. Um, so this is from the beginning. Um. And the Sea to the Sea is kind of written like a strange diary um, in which uh, he sort of, the character withholds things from you and kind of says, oh, this awful thing happened, but I won't tell you yet. So you're constantly waiting to find out what's happened and then set through these moments of enormous tension are these incredibly banal actions which are happening. Um, And I uh, had never read any Murdoch before I was asked to write this, I know, because I went to university and spent three years being told what to read, you know, um, and kind of left university thinking I'm never going to read anything that anybody has ever told anybody to read ever again. (laughs) Um, And, you know, to my detriment, because I missed out on so much things, and then when I was asked to write this, I kind of emailed back to Vintage very apologetically and said, Um, I would love to write it but I have never read any and they said that's fine the whole point of this series is to try and get these books to people who haven't read haven't read these before Um, and I kind of went into it thinking what if I hate it oh well I'll just make it up and like (laughs) 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 Um, and then like loved it and actually loved it I'm not just lying to you (laughs) Um, anyway so this is a food book I have not swum today I went to the tower steps in the afternoon, intending to swim, but found to my annoyance that the rope which I had fixed to the banister had somehow become untied and floated away. I am not very good at knots. In any case, that rope is perhaps too thick to knot easily. It occurs to me that a long piece of nylon cloth might be more serviceable. Felt a little depressed, but was cheered up by supper. Spaghetti with a little butter and dried basil. Basil is, of course, the king of herbs. Then spring cabbage cooked slowly with dill, Boiled onions served with bran, herbs, soya oil and tomatoes oh. with one egg beaten in. <laughs> oh. With these, a slice or two of cold, tin corned beef. <laughs> Meat is really just an excuse for eating vegetables. I drank a, a bottle of Retzina in honour of the undeserving rope.
2: <laughs>
3: there was a brilliant column in the Paris Review. I don't know if it's still running, but it was where the um, the writer used to cook meals from books and then write about yeah. them. And she did one on the sea, the Sea and, the ra- and you know, these kind of horrible boiled onions and things and that awful mixture. So it was great fun to read if anyone wants to As I said
4: it's it's written um, in this kind of diary form. Um, and it is about um, uh, an old male actor who has given up London, um, is tired of his friends and London and all of its awfulness and has come to live by the sea and bought this very Big rambling house um, by the sea, and for a long time, and the novel doesn't do anything. You know, has these meals and swims in the sea, and um, kind of occasionally ventures to the pub where the locals hate him, <laughs> as he would. <laughs> um, and then gradually, his friends start arriving from London. They kind of swarm in um, at different times throughout the book, and and he also. Um, I think this is another thing I love about Iris Murdoch is that she has these weird coincidences she always her characters always run into people mm-hmm. so uh, somebody who charles loved when he was a teenager happens to be living in the same village that he has moved to and he discovers this and then basically tortures her for the entirety of the book and his friends arrive and they kind of torture her and all these women who are in love with him arrive and there's this amazing scene where um Charles and a lot of the other men who are at the house are all in a car driving. <laughs> and then there's a woman on the cliff above them um, who at times has had sex with all of them, starts throwing rocks at the car <laughs> <laughs> and smashes the windscreen. So they all have to get up and run away <laughs> from the car. Um, and it just goes, everything goes wrong. Like, literally everything you can imagine goes wrong. And also set through it are these really weird, at the, time's our, at the time I was reading this book, I was reading a lot of horror and writing a lot of horror. And there are really weird supernatural bits in this mm. book that I think if anybody else wrote it, you'd think this does not work, that is not the same book, but they it works so, so well. Yeah. 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 It's a brilliant introduction. I think. <laughs> Anyone who hasn't
3: read it will rush to read it now, for sure. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about her male protagonist later. I think that's definitely something we should discuss. But first of all, Badisha, I would love to know now I've known the sort of history of um, the other two's uh, introduction to Murdoch. Am I right in thinking you've been a Murdoch fan for quite a while? This is not she your first. Date, you know, not my it? first time at the road. No, exactly. <laughs> uh, so tell us a little bit about your relationship with her. Uh,
5: briefly, I was a kid, very bored in the summer holiday, and my cousin, whose name is Joy, was a very well-known playwright at the time, and my first memory of him is actually doing play readings. Nice. And I went to him and I said, oh, I was so bored, and he gave me The Black Prince by Iris Murdoch. Oh, wow. I was eleven. It didn't make any. It didn't make a huge amount of sense at the time. I didn't quite log all of the finely um, layered. Did you knew something was good about it? Yes, absolutely. Um, I absolutely remembered the incredible storytelling and sense of clarity. And I feel that that's what's lost in an understanding of Murdoch. So. Mm-hmm. Um, she is sunk into this very unfair post war literary gloom where people say, well, you know, the literature of the time, the post war period, it was very experimental, it was very um, intellectual, they were doing all this experimentation with form, and so, and then the subtext is, and that's really interesting, but that doesn't make the books readable. Yeah. And actually, Iris Murdoch is enormous fun. I just want to second exactly what Daisy and Charlotte were saying, so just to pick up on the last thing that you said. Um, Murdoch was extremely alive to contingency and she wrote in her essay Against Dryness on the way that she doesn't like storytellers who don't have a sense of the fact that in reality you have chance and choice and change and you could be on your way here and then something comes out of left field and sometimes that's delightful and sexy and romantic Mm. and sometimes as in the end of one of her early novels it can be something like a terrorist attack in an airport just when you think you're about to get a happy ending and those things are not ridiculous Mm.
2: they happen in Mm. our
5: world all the time and yet actually if you put down what's real in fiction it seems ridiculous um she was brilliant on the way that being in love makes you act like a fool (laughs) and that being in love can happen at any time, any age in your life. She's very good on older men, Mm. characters who develop these fixations on young, often androgynous women and make total fools of themselves and she was also great on the way that it's in human nature for all of us to repeatedly make the same mistake over and over again. She's very good on repetition. She's really good on repetition and the fact that you can know what is right for you but you can want what's wrong for you. Mm. And again, that shows how generous she is towards human nature. I do think she was like that herself. She was enormously Mm. attracted. She was attracted to... She was
0: gorgeous. She
5: was gorgeous. She was very sexy but I also think that she was attracted to people's minds and that's Mm. why she had these very romantic relationships with men and Mm. with women and it wasn't to do with externals. Mm. It was to do with... With, oh my God! This person has a really interesting take, mm. and she would then sleep with them. But yeah. but the attraction was mental, mm. and she's good at writing on that. I also think she is very very extraordinary on this extremely specifically post-war thing of Oh my God! We've gone through two world wars. The Victorian era is over. There's no God, or if there is, it's a vengeful Old Testament God. How do I create a sense of spirituality and peace? Mm. And that's why you have her her her, character, her novels particularly the mid-period novels, I think from the bell... Actually, not even mid-period, from the bell onwards, mm. um, are full of spiritual seekers, and they're trying to create a lay community. You have lots of um, closeted gay priests and uh, who are trying to find some way of... Um, exploring their sexuality but also absolutely legitimately trying to find a sense of godliness or spirituality you have lots of communities which are like religious communities but they're not so there's no god at the center and that's why she's interested in the idea of good and of course she was a moral philosopher and that's a very platonic idea that you can find balance within yourself and as we see again and again the the characters fail but in a (laughs) in a really uh, human and really predictable way. In her novel, A Fairly Honourable Defeat, it's named after the idea that when good and evil face off against each other, mm. evil always wins, but good suffers a fairly, uh, fairly honourable defeat. Right. And I think that was her idea, and I think it's true in life as well.
3: It's mm. Brilliant. Would you like to read yeah. a little bit from the, sa-
5: the Sand Castle and maybe tell us a little bit about the book as well? Okay, uh, so the Sand Castle is, is a very very early novel. Yeah, it is completely set in that post-war world in a kind of suburban conurbation, where a guy called Moore. Typical M.O.R., typical sort of Murdochian random yes. <laughs> name. Could be for a man, could be for a woman, could be for your like, pet fish. It doesn't matter yeah, It's all. Um, animal, vegetable, and animal. he's a schoolmaster and his wife doesn't do anything. And the son's going to maybe work for a jeweller and the daughter's going to go to secretarial college. And they're not really in the countryside, but they're not really in London. They're sort of at the end of a motorway. And that's it. I mean, you know, the, the biggest excitement of his life is, am I going to stand for a Labour safe seat? and it's a safe seat so if he stands for it he's (laughs) going to get it so that's not even peril and um Into all of this comes this really fabulous, gifted young woman artist called Rain Carter. And as ever, you know, a story begins with the arrival of someone or something and everyone gets very excited because there's a sexy woman and stuff is going to happen. And all the men start behaving in a really me too kind of way. Murdoch does does not condone that, uh, but she didn't see herself. She writes a lot about it. She does. And she did not see see herself as a feminist, um, particularly. Mm. She had lots of women friends, though. Uh, and so Moore obviously develops a fascination for Rain Carter. That's one uh, way of putting it. Uh, and I'll read you. Uh, my bit is not funny. They, they, they go to what they think of as the countryside, but, I mean, we'll see if it is or not. <laughs> uh, Moore began to study the countryside. By this time they were deep in the ragged, coniferous Surrey landscape, which lies between the fanned-out lines of the great main roads out of London, the region where the escaping Londoner says, a little doubtfully... Now at last we are really in the country. The afternoon was growing hotter and the woodlands thicker, more immobile and more heavily perfumed. They drove on. With a simultaneous cry, they greeted what now appeared quite suddenly upon the road before them. Miss Carter braked violently. She said, How strange. I thought at first it was a mirage. The water ran twinkling across the road in a wide, steady sheet. They could hear it running. For a while they sat in an entranced silence, listening to its noise. Then Miss Carter let the car come very slowly forward until the front wheels were dipping into the water. The water emerged from the wood under concrete shelves, the tops of which were covered with earth and grasses. Beyond this, the trees were thick and it was impossible to see what was happening to the river. The engine was almost noiseless now, and above it rose the massed hum of the woodland on a summer afternoon, a dazing sound that confounded itself with silence. It was as if, since they had passed the White Gate, they had entered another world. The spirit of the wood pressed upon them, and Moore found himself looking from side to side, expecting to see something strange. The path was well kept and closely covered with fine grass, and someone had cut the bracken back on either side. All the same, the ferns and the wild flowers were close enough to the wheels of the car to touch them as they passed. Miss Carter stopped the car suddenly. She spoke in a low voice. Would you like to drive? And that's the bit where, like, you know, it's like a meet-cute. They have a magical afternoon. Yeah. And in Murdoch, water always signifies... Uh, virtue and sensuality you have lots and lots of repeated characters particularly in the mid-period novels who love to swim naked in rivers which we know that Murdoch liked to do and so for her the water symbolizes that that place which is magical but also where you're fully yourself Mm. and that moment is very kind of it's very classically Victorian actually for this novel it's the idea that there's the city and then the country and then in a purely Jungian Freudian kind of way um, in the countryside true emotions are revealed and disguises are actually truthful and that what happens there is some sort of indication of how you really feel but you can't take it back with you to the suburbs or back with Mm. you to the city and in fact that's what what Moore discovers that our fantasy version of life is not congruent doesn't is not compatible with the brute version
0: of reality Mm. The other woman writer that I am tediously obsessed with is Elizabeth Taylor the novelist and I think in, in a really dissimilar way, they've both been ignored for similar reasons. As in, they both write about sort of the domestic forum. Mm-hmm. Um, they were middle class women. They were in the interwar period when surely you should be writing about war because that's what's important, or post war period. And um, I mean, let's face it, you know, I think still an awful lot of people don't like intelligent women. So, why would they want to read a book by one?
4: Yeah, I think the point about the, the domestics really valid, you, mm. you know, because they are just you. They are just kind of people, mm. um, not necessarily going to war mm. or just exactly. kind of like going to the post office and sending a letter or like going to visit a friend. Mm. And there is kind of small minutiae mm. that I do. Yeah, maybe is mm. the issue. That's but that's really
0: what important. Thomas Hardy wrote about. Mm. Yeah, I remember yeah. I think yeah. Anne Tyler a, there was a brilliant interview with her where she said, you know, she's very aware that she's mm. she and other women writers look down on for writing about the domestic field, and she sometimes thinks, you know, sorry, I didn't go to war. But it's true. I think it's true. You know, it's inherently more serious if you write about that. Mm. Well, no, it's not, because the letter that the person might be posting will change several people's lives. It's just in a different way. Mm.
5: And now I'm meeting lots of, you know, there's an Iris Murdoch Centre at Kingston University, and I gave lectures there. And, you know, it's really great to see a 20 year old international student who just, they find, because she wrote so many novels, you always find one <laughs> yeah. in a <the> second-hand <laughs> <Yeah>. bookshop. <laughs> and you pick it up, and particularly these, which have, I mean, obviously these are much better and you should buy them, but the <laughs> there are lots of these orange ones going around. People pick them up out of curiosity mm. and they enter Murdoch Land. And it's very alluring. And the thing is, once you've read one, if you kind of liked it, you get very mm. intrigued and you start to read all of them. Mm. And I tried to read one interspersed with a different book, just to like, as right. a palate cleanser. <gasps> (gasps) Uh, So I think there's something very contemporary about her work. All of this emotional seeking. You have Mm. these characters who are saying, you know, what is gender? What is spirituality? How do I find peace Mm. in this rocky world that's Mm. very technological? She was talking about the 60s, but I think it's even Mm. more true now. Mm. How do I find a sense of creativity? If everyone's looking at their phones, why am I sitting here reading Mm. an Iris Murdoch novel? Mm, They're asking all of those things. And those people are are even younger than you, even younger than than the ones who were young when the film came out. Yeah. So they are really mm. just discovering it from the word and th- she has this way of hooking you in. So the mm. people who like her become fanatical. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that's fine. I think that's fine. I think she's going to have an extremely long afterlife. And it it also takes a long time for things to bake out, you know. It mm. takes mm. in every generation we we feel like we're always creating all the time. In every generation you remember maybe six names. Yeah. Yeah, you know, if you think about the writers that you know from the 19th century. Yeah how many names is it? It's not that many. Um, so let's hope that she is one of the names. She's going to be
0: last. Can I just add one thing to that? Would yeah, think She's do. actually the perfect novelist for teenagers. Yeah, so we I both f- discovered her as poor teenagers going, well, what is this Iris Murdoch person? Um, because it's all about falling in love with the wrong person. It's all about sexual longing. It's all about, oh, what am I? Mm. I mean, it, which makes her sound juvenile. She's not, but she's sort of perfect for teenagers. I agree. Oh... Oh, Iris. business. (laughs) (laughs) Come to us, Iris. We have a sales.
5: (laughs) She would love that. She would love love that. that. She would be into that. Her
0: cheekbones materializing Ah, in the balloon.
1: Thank you so much for listening to the vintage podcast i really hope you enjoyed coming along with us to that event do check out our new editions of iris murdoch's work we've got the sand castle with an introduction by badisha who was just on the panel the black prince with an introduction by sophie hannah under the net with an introduction by charlotte Mendelssohn who's on the panel the bell with an introduction by sarah perry a fairly honorable defeat with an introduction by garth greenwell and last but not least, that Man Booker Prize winning, The Sea, The Sea, with an introduction by Daisy Johnson, who was on the panel too. Keep reading, keep listening. We always love hearing what you're reading uh, when you tweet us or contact us on Instagram. We're at Vintage Books on both of those. Um, if you're enjoying these episodes, do tell a friend and take a little look into our backlist. It's truly a little treasure trove uh, of incredible conversations by people much smarter than me. I've been Lena Norms, and until next time.